0: It's cyclical. Vince touched on it on the earnings call in terms of the injuries we had in 2018. That that created a little bit of a speed bump for us, and we saw it in various places, which is why we think it is cyclical.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Wrestleomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston. It is March 16th, 2019, and I am broadcasting on demand from an apartment in the Black Rock section of Buffalo, New York, owned by my landlord. It is 33 degrees out, and Partly cloudy, And I think last time we talked on Ruslamics Radio, uh, we went over the Saudi money spreadsheet. You can find that in the archives, probably on the podcast app that you're listening to right now, where we talked about how Saudi Arabia probably gave WWE about $50 million for the Greatest Royal Rumble in April 2018, and probably got another, I don't know, 20 to 40 maybe $30 million for Crown Jewel in November. Since then, I've written an article on WWE Popularity, uh, actually, a response that George Berrios made to uh, a question in a conference about W Popularity. We'll talk about that later. And, uh, but I've also been re- updating WrestleNomics.com, which used to just be a website that showed links to our podcast, the podcast that you're listening to right now. But now it's been updated with some links to some useful resources, including things like uh, Mookie's blog, Indeed Wrestling, uh, Mookie's stats site, there is access now that's available publicly. Just by going to WrestleNomics.com, you can get anyone. No, nobody has to pay anything. They can get access to the WrestleNomics Google Drive, where Chris Harrington and I have stored all sorts of documents and files in there, everything from uh, business metrics, spreadsheets, uh, copies of W contracts, various things that have been uh, found through lawsuits. Uh, there's also, speaking of lawsuits, the, uh, there's a link here to the Pro Wrestling Legal Research and Preservation Group. Uh, which is also just a, a Google Drive full of documents related to r- lawsuits involving wrestlers and wrestling promotions. The link to all of the WrestleNomics Premium episodes that were recorded in 2017 and 2018 are there. Those used to be available only to patrons uh, on our, our former, no longer active Patreon account. Uh, so all that stuff is out there for the masses for free. So go check that stuff out. It's out there. I want that to be out there uh, for free. For anybody, there's no ads there, there's no subscription fee, there's no uh, spyware that's going to infect your computer when you click on it. Uh, it as some people may know, Chris Harrington has gone on to be the Vice President of Business Strategy for AEW. He's no longer a part of this podcast, so therefore, the capitalist era of WrestleNomics Radio is over, and, and long live the era of WrestleNomics Democratic Socialism. So, all that stuff, no matter who you are, you should have access to it. If you're uh, just somebody who's trying to do some research, if you're just somebody who's trying to understand the wrestling business, if you're, God forbid, a wrestling news reporter who wants to do something other than aggregation and transcription or uh, reporting on who's saying what on social media today. Uh, we've also got about uh, nine articles here that uh, either Mookie, Chris Harrington, or I have written over the last few years. Uh, just things that I think are still relevant or were like a big deal research things at the time that we kind of uncovered. Uh, the popularity assessment that I just referenced is linked here Uh Mookie has a really good article that's like an explainer on how to follow w business, how to do research on it. Another one on how to find uh, lawsuit documents. So find all that stuff at WrestleNomics.com. Uh, I will also be updating the... Uh, there's a WrestleNomics YouTube channel, and I plan on updating that soon with some uh, audio that we've done in the past on the independent contractor slash employee issue uh, in professional wrestling, especially around WB's issues with it. So look for that soon. In the world of actual in-ring wrestling on March 30th, in North Tawana, I'll be wrestling for Empire State Wrestling, defending the ESW heavyweight title against big-time Bill Collier. On April 6th, I'll be wrestling for Southern Tier Wrestling in Faulkner, New York. I believe that's just outside Jamestown. Uh, I'll be wrestling for Empire State Wrestling again in Allegheny on April 13th. That's Allegheny, New York. Pro Wrestling Rampage in Erie, Pennsylvania on April 20th. And uh, maybe even in April, I will be uh, doing something somewhere wrestling for uh, something beyond the usual set of promotions that I usually wrestle for. So maybe look for news on that soon. Uh, so today we're going to go through a number of topics. W. popularity, George Barrios, W. Viewership demographics, that is mainly the male and female viewership demographics for SmackDown and Raw. The trends of those demographics over the last few years. What we learned from the W. Proxy statement, mainly that's going to be stuff about W. Executive salaries and uh, who owns what percentage of W. Stock. But first, first we're going to talk about WrestleMania attendance. WrestleMania attendance may be the most popular and or controversial and contentious subject in all of WrestleNomics lore.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we all are part of history in the making here this afternoon for WrestleMania 3.
1: It is with great honor that I inform you, Dallas, Texas, WWE Universe.
0: As we have established, all of us, a brand new indoor attendance record of 93,173. Give yourself a big hand.
1: Tonight... You have officially
0: broken the WWE WrestleMania attendance record.
1: All right. So let's get this out of the way. I'm not about to talk about WrestleMania 3, except for to say this. Uh, so, w- so what we're going to talk about, obviously, is that WWE, each year, announces a WrestleMania attendance number. They announce it right there on the broadcast. It's a big number. It's placed there for a big pop, and uh, there's a big wide shot of Maybe fireworks in this huge crowd, right? Big, big stadium attendance, right? And, uh, the, the most controversial and the most combative issue, uh, related to this is, of course, WrestleMania 3 in 1987 at the Pontiac Silver Dome in Michigan. And how many people were really there? Dave Meltzer says it was 78,000, but WWE says it was 93,179. Yes, I have that number memorized. Um, and how many people were really there? People will yell at each other and get very mean. Over Twitter and other forms of the internet and social media about this. Um, uh, we talked about this a few months ago on WrestleNomics and we were looking closely at a, a big photo of the Silver in Pontiac, Michigan and thinking about what the, uh, what the known attendance was of the, of the stadium. Uh, I think it's probably somewhere in between. This is even more controversial, right? I, th- I think this is it, the, the actual attendance of WrestleMania 3 was probably a number of people in the building uh in in the in the seats probably about 86,000 so that just happens to be like smack dab in the middle between 78,000 and 93,000 so uh paid attendance though which is what we're about to talk about uh for for WrestleMania 3 I have no idea so it, it's important to keep in mind here that what I'm about to talk about is like is a certain sort of metric when I talk when we talk about attendance attendance just on its, on its face uh can just sound like yeah it's the number of people in the building yeah well what we're going to talk about here is the the paid attendance, because that's what we can extract from WV's own reporting, because W does report some attendance information uh, as far as average attendance, and we believe that the, the attendance that they're reporting is uh, the the paid attendance. So I'm not talking about people in the building. I'm talking about people who uh, bought tickets or the number of tickets that were paid for. And today, since these are the, the number of years that we have access to, I'm only going to talk about 2008 through 2018, which, which conveniently leaves out 2007, which involved Mr. Trump. So he'll, he'll be left out of this conversation, unfortunately. So what we have here and longtime fans of WrestleNomics Radio, loyal followers of, of WrestleNomics Radio who now own a WrestleNomics Radio mug, uh, these people well know and they, they drink their coffee every morning and then they see it every morning that they wake up. The This graph, uh, that we put on coffee mugs that we sent out to, I don't know, 20, 30 people out, out there around the world, uh, It's a graph that shows what the range of the actual paid attendance was for each WrestleMania 2008 to the present. And then it shows a little red dot above that, in all cases higher, which is the attendance that WWE announced. So I'll I'll spare the listeners, and I won't just go through all 11 WrestleManias here and and read the numbers. Uh, If you want to see the graph, it's on my Twitter account. But uh, just to give you an idea and and to pick out a few, uh, the most interesting one probably is WrestleMania 32, As a lot of people may remember, over 100,000 fans uh, was the announcement. 101,763 fans, uh, according to WB on that night. The information from WB's own published key performance indicators tells us that the uh, range of attendance was, of paid attendance, was somewhere between 74,000 and 86,000. And the median of that would be about 80,000. And it just so happens that uh, in 2016, uh, just after WrestleMania, I, I emailed the uh, Arlington Police Department and asked them if they had any information on what the attendance was, and they actually got back to me and gave me a number, 80,709, and that was something that I actually reported about a year after that WrestleMania, so in March 2017, that was an article on Fightful.com, you can find that on Fightful.com, the title is, WrestleMania 32 had just over 80,000 fans in attendance, and that 80,709 was, as they, their press office said, it was the number of people through the turnstiles. So take that to mean whatever you think that means. Last year's WrestleMania in New Orleans, uh, 2018, the announced number was 78,133. The median of the range that we get from the KPIs is about 60,000. And by the way, to explain just how do I get these numbers, how do we know what I'm, what I'm saying is true? WWE, each year, uh, it, for each quarter, actually they report a average attendance for North American live attendance, right? So, okay, so WrestleMania is always in North America. It always has been. And so each quarter, uh, each year that contains WrestleMania, they give you an average attendance with WrestleMania and an average attendance without WrestleMania. So taking those two numbers, we can do some math. That's uh, that I've got a spreadsheet that's linked to the tweet that I mentioned. You can do the math, and you can deduce within... Uh, about five, six thousand, sometimes as low as three thousand, just what the attendance was. So, if you compare the announced number to uh, the median of the the ranges that we have here, your WrestleMania attendance looks to be inflated somewhere between seven percent and twenty five percent. That is the difference between the announced number and the paid attendance number. And obviously, you can digest w- what WWE's announced number means. It it may mean uh the number of people just in the building it may include cops it may include ticket takers and ushers and things of that nature which is exactly what verbatim Vince McMahon said uh, at, at one point in a conference call following Wrestlemania 32 he said that that 101,000 number did include ticket takers and ushers and things of that nature.
0: In addition to that just a little bit more calling Wrestlemania we were proud to set our attendance record of over 100,000 which includes by the way uh ushers and ticket takers and all of that. It wasn't 101,000 paid, but nonetheless, it was a record for us.
1: So just what does WWE mean when it says attendance is open for interpretation? They don't really get specific. So in a sense, we are talking about two different metrics, paid attendance and perhaps the people that are in the building beyond the paid attendance. Yet I think the way that WWE announces it, they are giving you the impression that these are the number of people that we drew to the building. And in fact, in pro-wrestling, often, or in, you know, in business, always the, the objective is to draw money, is, is an economic objective. And in fact, that's kind of what this entire concept of WrestleNomics is about, is about drawing money in, in wrestling. In wrestling, because it's a work, there are wins and losses, but as we know, those wins and losses are predetermined. So the only sort of real score or real result that we have to look at are the economic results. So I tweeted this graph. Uh, this afternoon, and I had the unfortunate honor of, of being quote-tweeted by Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. So I will go through some of the, yes, the tweet replies to this tweet. Let's see what we have here. Could the difference be given away tickets, I guess that is comps, just playing devil's advocate? And I guess that I would say that, yes, the number that WWE announces, if it were true, absolutely has to include comps, because it is clearly the number that they're announcing each year. Is well beyond what the paid attendance could possibly be based on their own reporting. But ultimately, I think where this number comes from, and, uh, I think someone else here asks the question, you know, where does this number come from? Is there some formula? So the median of the paid attendance that we can deduce from W's key performance indicators is anywhere between 7 and 24 percent, uh, compared to what WB announces. So just to go through the years, 8%, 20%, 7%, 10%, 20%, 14%, 25%, 25%, 23%, 10%, and and last year, 24%. So there doesn't seem to be any consistency. It's not as if it's the same percentage each year or even close to the same percentage each year in terms of what percentage is it in excess of, of the median, of the range that we deduce from the KPIs. Does WB actually count up all of the stadium workers and all of their own workers and then add that to the paid attendants and then add that to the comps, uh, maybe. But um, take the case of WrestleMania 32 in the Cowboy Stadium. The difference is almost 19,000, 18,920. Uh, is is comps plus stadium workers plus WWE workers really equal almost 19,000? That seems really high to me, and I, I doubt it. On the lowest end here, we have in 2010, WrestleMania 26. That's 4,630. Huh, maybe, especially when we're already talking about a range that's about the same size as that. So a question that always comes up in relation to this topic is, hey, WWE is a publicly traded company. They have to file you know, reports with the SEC. Uh, the government has to be watching over them about this. How can they get away with this? And to the best of my knowledge, the reality is uh, the SEC... The investors, uh, people who uh, cover wb stock, don't care about the exact attendance number. Uh, they care about what the gate was, the amount of money that was drawn in ticket sales, which wb also does report, and no one's questioning that number. Like, say, in the case of WrestleMania 32, uh, that number was $17.3 million. Uh There's nobody that's questioning that. If they were embellishing on, the, on that number, and yeah, it might include, as Dave Meltzer says, it might include uh, fees and things like that but the gate number that they report i do believe is credible and uh, so if they were lying about their revenue numbers about some some sort of financial number that they were reporting yes they could be in trouble with the sec but that's not exactly the same as exaggerating attendance for a giant event apparently and i think like on a psychological level though i think it's interesting to think about like why do people get so excited and upset about this you know, people will often point out when this subject comes up that, hey, look look at other sports, you know, when they have big events at big stadiums, they often exaggerate their attendance as well. And that very may very well be true, and I bet there's not uh, you know, NFL fans out there arguing with each other about what the real attendance was for the Super Bowl or something like that. Uh in the way that there are wrestling fans arguing with each other about what the actual attendance was for WrestleMania thirty two or WrestleMania three. And I think it has something to do with pro-wrestling being a work, being in some sense fictional. WWE especially having this atmosphere, this vibe, this relationship with its audience of kind of always concealing the truth or trying to control the narrative and t- trying to control what its audience thinks. And I think there's some level of distrust with the way WWE often tries to ignore what seemed to be, to a lot of people, obvious truths. I don't know, like, for example, changing people's names and changing people's gimmicks and pretending that they were never these other people and they never had those other names and using language that no one in real life ever uses to talk about what you're talking about, like sports entertainment instead of wrestling and like superstar instead of wrestler, just to name a few. The, the seemingly edicts to n- never acknowledge the history of, of certain wrestlers and personalities once they're no longer on good terms with WWE. WWE's willingness to rewrite its own history, exaggerate its own history to their own benefit, WWE and Vince McMahon clearly not being the only promotion or promoter who have done things like that over the history of pro wrestling, although they may have the most counts against them, and just some things like that over the decades that a lot of people have been wrestling fans, or at least I guess that maybe that's my projection of the emotional reasons why this is such a hot issue for some people. And it's clearly an interesting issue to me too. So WrestleMania this year is happening in Q2 again. The Q2 report, which is Q2 is covering the months of what? April, May, June. That report usually comes out at the end of July or early August. So around that time this year, late July or early August, we'll probably get a new set of KPIs that will give us attendance with and without WrestleMania, an average with and without WrestleMania. And I'll be able to do the same math again and get another range of what the paid attendance was for wrestlemania 35 in east rutherford new york new york new jersey all right so mr george berrios we meet again
0: i want to touch on all those points and maybe just before we do investors often ask me how do i sort of keep track or assess the level of popularity of the content is it growing is it shrinking and I usually just say, well, Fox and NBC almost quadrupled what they're paying you, so that sort of speaks for itself. But when you look at the ratings, generally on TV, you guys have had some ratings pressure, you look at the, the attendance trends, which you spent some time on, it's called been a little soft, consumer products, there's, there's certainly some questions in the marketplace about that data and sort of um, reconciling that with this incredible tailwind on the media side. How, how do you guys answer that question around measuring and assessing the core popularity and
2: health of VIP?
1: That was Ben Swinburne of Morgan Stanley, an analyst, financial analyst for Morgan Stanley. And he was talking to George Berrios, who is the co-president of WV, along with the other co-president, Michelle Wilson. But uh, you know, this talk only involved George Berrios, as they often do. He goes around to the conference loop. He does these tech media conferences, whatever they are, and he was having a fireside chat with Ben Swinburne from Morgan Stanley here. And Ben Swinburne asked him the question, the relevant question. And sort of getting at, perhaps only coincidentally, something that I wrote about in some depth for Fightful.com, about how WWE's popularity, uh, there's a number of metrics that you can look at that certainly suggest that WWE's popularity from 2016 through 2018 has declined moderately, even though WWE, on the other hand, is increasingly financially healthy. So let's just run through quickly what the seven uh, metrics were that I looked at that support that WWE's popularity seems to be declining. you got TV viewership decreasing at a rate stronger than than it's decreasing for TV overall. Average North American attendance is down. Total attendance is down. In at least one quarter last year, uh, WWE's live event segment of its business struggled to make a profit. Merchandise sales at the venue were down. Google searches for WWE were down consistently over those three years. The W Network doing okay year over year, increasing in subscribers year over year still. All right. But maybe people are still adopting the technology. Maybe that accounts for that. What they call AVOD viewership, that's views of videos on YouTube especially, and Facebook and other forms of media. Those are up just about every quarter from the last. So that doesn't generate a lot of money, but that's doing really well. Social media growth, that uh, doesn't generate much money, but it may maybe it means something. Uh, that's up continuously. They just hit 1 billion followers. However, there is a lack of growth on Facebook. So you've got seven points there. Uh, definitely four of them. That is TV viewership, ticket sales, merchandise sales, and web searches. Uh, four out of the seven of them point pretty decisively to some sort of decline. And the other three are very much forms of new media that may be increasing or or you're seeing what would be decreases offset by the fact that more and more people throughout the world are adopting the technology that is related to the w network youtube facebook and various forms of social media so what swanburn's question is really getting at is that w is in this really counterintuitive situation where they're because of enormous tv rights fees that are escalating that are higher fees with each payment uh, w just signed a new contract with fox and NBC universal they're going to be making even more money for at least another five years. Uh, they're a more and more successful financial company, but they don't seem to be getting much more popular. And in fact, going over the evidence that I just did, there's some suggestions here that maybe their popularity is actually declining. And uh, I think it's, it's notable to keep in mind that uh, Morgan Stanley does have uh, some stock in WWE, about 425,000 shares. Uh, that's only less than one uh, half of 1% of the company about $35 million of market value. But as I wrote on this subject for Fightful.com, unexamined in Swinburne's question is whether the dichotomy between TV rights increases and popularity decline represents any vulnerability. And while WWE is by far the leader in the wrestling industry, is there any possibility that the increased demand for live TV content, like that of WWE's, might result in another well-funded player in the wrestling industry attracting its own lucrative TV rights contract? and maybe competing long-term with WWE for talent, if not for a share of other valued metrics. And you can take a look at what AEW is doing lately, uh, its ability to attract the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega and Cody Rhodes away from joining WWE, and you consider uh, reports of other wrestlers in WWE requesting their releases. Uh, That, to me, suggests that the competition for talent is already underway, and you could say, well, the competition for talent has... uh, increasingly become underway. This is not an absolutely new phenomenon. I think there were, you know, you just look at things like MLW before this and before that, uh, Lucha Underground and before that, Ring of Honor and Impact Wrestling. All these companies, except for Lucha Underground, uh, probably uh, have wrestlers under contract and are continuing to compete for talent. But the prospect of AEW having a lot of money behind it in the Khan family and uh, possibly getting a TV deal sometime in the future could present a number of challenges for WWE in the future, especially if they do get a lucrative TV rights deal. So we're going to listen to George's response to that question, but I think uh, it, it would be pertinent to ask somebody who's a WWE executive, uh, if star power is a key factor in the, in the decline, as Berrios says it is in his answer, uh, then I think we should ask WWE executives, you know, what is the company's vision for star creation and for star elevation. Has the company evaluated its creative vision in recent years? Is uh, doing things like hiring Bruce Pritchard and Jeff Jarrett and Dana Warrior, is that uh, their way of addressing this? Uh, Could the decline in attendance and viewership be at all related to the often criticized creative direction of WWE's main roster programming, which of course has been led for decades by the company's CEO, Vince McMahon? And could the decline in those metrics have anything to do with that creative team's ability or the lack of it to create difference-making stars and to maximize goodwill with its audience, to tell engaging stories that compel more consumers to tune in, to buy tickets, and to buy merchandise? Or does the company feel that uh, such criticisms of WWE's programming, of its creative team, or whatever it is, can those criticisms still just be dismissed, as Vince McMahon once dismissed them and in an earnings call in 2015 as a vocal minority whose noise doesn't reflect any present or even incoming economic reality.
0: That's good for WWE. It created controversy. Uh, and it really, it was a uh, a gesture by, by some, a vocal minority, in terms of not liking the creative. <laughs> Santa Claus didn't come uh, for that pay-per-view. And uh, so that's really what that was for them. Uh, but it, it, it's like someone who watches our television show uh, or things about nature, and, and the, the baby face as we call them, does not win. And they say, I'm never going to watch this ever again. Well, I know that person is going to be glued to the television next week. It's the same here. We saw no decline whatsoever in, in any of that. Uh, it created controversy, and that was really good for us. Very helpful, then. Thank you.
1: And that was, of course, Laura Martin of Needham who had the audacity to ask that question. So I, I think those are subjects that Berrios, in his straightforward nuts and bolts, media and business, content and distribution descriptions of W as a company that he hasn't contended with uh, and which people with access to ask W executives questions like that in public seem insufficiently informed or unwilling to inquire about for the most part. But all right, let's, let's let George actually answer the question. Yeah.
0: So what we try, um, I would say the most important metric for us is time spent. Uh, And in some cases, it's fairly easy for us to measure time spent. You know, we have pretty good visibility, obviously, to our SVOD service. We have pretty good visibility to the digital platforms uh, on the traditional pay TV platforms. You know, depending what country you're talking about, the measurement systems are better than others. But we aggregate all that and uh, that number is important to us, uh, the scale of the number, as well as the trajectory. So it was up in 2018, about 8%, 5.8 billion hours. Um, so that was good. Uh, I would say, if you said to me, five years from now, what's more important, that that number grows or that your scale is big enough that it cuts through the uh, clutter? Um, of this fragmenting ecosystem, I'd say I want both. but I'd probably take the latter. You know, I want it big enough that it cuts through. Because in some ways, it'll, it could be difficult for anyone to grow, given the proliferation of ways to spend your time. I think what becomes important as that happens is that you want to be, you know, if there's a barbell effect where there's 10 million content creators from PewDiePie to the NFL generating half the, uh, you know, 10 million content creators, generating half the economics. And over here, the other half are going to 20 or 30 passion brands like the NFL or the IPL and hopefully WWE. I want to be on that side of the barbell. Um, so it's important for us to have enough scale to cut through the clutter. Uh, certainly in the U.S. we think we do. But ultimately what we look at is time. Generally, you know, there's other metrics that it's hard for us to quantify time, like the attendance. So we just look at live event attendance. Uh, we'll look at what our sell through is at retail, we'll look at our own um, direct to consumer commerce business. So we look at all of those um, generally, over a long arc of time, we feel good. Um, I think the numbers speak from themselves of how we've done. And like you said, uh, we had two pretty smart partners here in the U.S. Uh, validate that uh, with the economics.
1: So for George everything is reducible to time and he wants to cut through the clutter which is his his new his latest favorite marketing phrase for for those of you out there who are Berrios Bingo fans that it's, that is the latest uh, Bingo Square to cut through the clutter. But you know, I think uh Barrios is, is what he's saying here is interesting and true and uh he lays out these two alternatives. Would you rather have a brand with metrics that are growing, maybe not, not not necessarily a giant brand, but a brand that's growing in popularity? Or would you rather have a massive brand like WWE, like the NFL, something that's enormously popular, but not necessarily becoming increasingly popular? You know, as a businessman, he chooses the latter to be, as he calls it, a passion brand. So I think it's, it's true and it's interesting. He's, he's describing the reality of the modern media landscape where there are millions of entertainment creators ever more niche and suited to specific interests, like Nomics, and more and more of them are economically viable, and, and even Nomics has been known to generate a dollar or two in revenue. But the few giants, they still rise far above the rest, and they can offer an asset that helps hold together For example, the traditional TV bundle. And that's what big, rich TV networks and cable and satellite providers need to survive. They need this peak, highly ranked, highly viewed content. Stuff like what WWE has. Three hours of Raw, two hours of SmackDown. Still, even though its viewership is declining, it's still among the highest rated and most highly viewed content on its given night on cable. So those giants like the NFL or the IPL or WWE are rewarded with unprecedentedly massive TV rights money in return. So in that case, you can afford to have declining attendance or declining merchandise sales because you've got giant TV rights fees to more than offset it. And we'll see how the future of media plays out, but you can even have declining viewership as long as your viewership is still highly ranked among all the others. So we'll let George continue.
0: Having said that, and we think it's cyclical. Vince touched on it on the earnings call in terms of the injuries we had in 2018. That that created a little bit of a speed bump for us. And we saw it in various places, which is why we think it is cyclical. Um, so our hope is, you know, as, as talent uh, recuperate and come back, that kind of that'll be uh, in the rearview mirror. And people have asked similarly, well, how long does it, when that happens, how long does it usually take? So we really don't know. You know, it, it's it's not like it's happening continuously and you have some model around it last time i remember something similar was 2010 we had uh, a several top talent get injured or retire and you kind of saw the same thing so a little bit of softness you know six 12 months later you kind of saw it abate because you had new talent come on or or people recuperate and come back to the to the main roster so we'll see how that plays out Uh, but generally i I, we tend to agree 2018 was a was a great year and and our hope you know it's five years of record revenue through 2018 we think this year we'll hit right around a billion dollars and, uh, our expectation is that, you know, for the ensuing several years, we'll continue to build
1: on that. So using that line of reasoning, uh, which is what, that there's, there were injuries this year. There were a lot of injuries and the talent was absent, uh, using that line of reasoning to me, uh, to try to explain away the decline in metrics only raises further questions. Like, I don't know, was this year really that much worse than other years, uh, Q4, October to December? It may have been especially effective because he had Roman Reigns out. Uh, he had announced that he, he was dealing with leukemia. And he, but he worked a full schedule for much of the year up to that point. Dean Ambrose, it's true, was uh, recovering from injury until August, until his return then. But other leading stars like AJ Styles and Seth Rollins and Braun Strowman, they wrestled at least one match in each month of 2018. I think Styles was working through some injuries. He still wrestled in 82 matches and wrestled in every month of the year. Rollins had 157 matches, Strowman had 142 matches. Neil Bryan, a wrestler that didn't even have as an active wrestler, uh, actually returned to the ring in April, having his first matches since 2015, and he eventually took a main event role on SmackDown, and he's the champion right now. But maybe the biggest factor here, and, and the one that uh, Barrios isn't naming, is John Cena. Of course, John Cena was has been more and more phased out as a regular wrestler, even regularly appearing. Uh, in WWE, Cena had the least present year of his WWE career. He only had 28 matches. He's arguably the most recognizable person in WWE, and he's going to make movies now. But you know when I when I do these Google web search research projects and I load up the spreadsheet, it's John Cena who's at the top. And this has been a, a progressive thing since the end of 2015. Uh, that was the last year that he wrestled in more than 80 matches in a year in 2015, and he's wrestled in fewer and fewer. And the following year since 2015 coincided with this decline in the viewership of Raw, That is a decline below the rate of TV overall. And it's coincided with a decline in house show attendance. So I think the question that should be asked by analysts is, what's W going to do to to fill this void that Cena is leaving? Is there someone else who W believes uh, is as strong a star as Cena or has the potential to be? Is it Roman Reigns? Uh, How how does he compare? Uh, Give us some color on that. But if we accept this premise that Barrios asserts here that injuries really are a problem that had such a wide effect on business for a full year, then also I think we should ask what's WB doing to curtail those injuries? You know, I think when you're in a situation where house show attendance is falling, uh, the live event business struggled to make a profit in Q3 2018, Vince McMahon said he's going to reimagine the live events business. Nobody's sure what he meant by that. And I think, as I've said before, I think it's time to reevaluate whether you need to be running so many house shows. As far as injuries, sure, the company may have an excellent medical staff, let's say they do, in place to treat injuries once they happen, but maybe running fewer house shows rather than more than 200 a year would prevent some injury. You know, I think the research that Chris Harrington did is out there. The more matches you wrestle, you wrestle a high number of matches without a a long break, you become very prone to injury. Running fewer shows, fewer house shows, I think, would reduce the proneness to that injury. It would allow more wrestlers to be more likely to appear on WTV year-round. Maybe that would have some positive effect on viewership or maintaining the decline. Maybe even network subscriptions and ticket sales would be better than they are otherwise. Worker morale might be raised, too, if performers had a lighter schedule and had more time to spend at home and recover from the rigors of travel and of matches. And maybe even WWE would have One more benefit to offer as they try to attract and retain stars as this company competes with talent with emerging wrestling brands that already are going to offer a lighter schedule to begin with. And to add to that, uh, there's an interview with Roman Reigns from the 8th of March with an outlet called TalkSport where Roman Reigns is asked about a potential off season. He endorsed it. He said, I think we could make it work. It would give a great benefit to our performers and our fans as well. It would definitely give our performers another couple of months, if not a full quarter to rest and recover, not only just from a physical standpoint, but creatively. There's a few other things we'll go through here quickly. The question was asked to us whether Ronda Rousey has, uh, is there any indication that Ronda Rousey has been, I don't know, worth it or is Ronda Rousey a draw? And, uh, First of all, I sort of want to push back against the notion that anyone is a draw anymore. Or at least there's a problem with using that sort of language and it reflecting reality, at least these days. Or maybe that's just the case with the ceiling that W has created for itself. But I think lots of people are of value. I don't know that anyone is a big draw uh, certainly John Cena was a, a draw at house show events uh, through, for example, the years of 2011 and 2015 and probably before that. But there's definitely data out there that I've found that, that shows that, that supports that. But lots of people are probably a value. And if you take enough people away, metrics are going to start to hurt. But is there one person who's a big deal to, to business metrics and who moves the needle? Not really. And I'm talking about full-time active people in WWE today. But at least with Rousey, there's there's a lack of uh, data that shows that she's a draw or a high value for WWE. One area that you would have expected that she would have improved for WWE might be uh, the female viewership for Raw. So I took a look at the viewership demographics, male and female and people in general, for Raw and for SmackDown. If you look at those demographics over the last uh, four years... 2015, 16, 17, and 18. And in the case of raw, what you see is a decline in, in all demographics, but there was less of a decline for raw overall uh, in the female demographics. Only a negative 3% decline in F18 to 49, that's women 18 to 49, only only down 3% over those four years, whereas the same male demographic was down 18%. So in younger demographics, for, for people ages 12 to 34, the female demographic was down 30% over those four years, but not down as as hard as the male demographic of 12 to 34 was down 37%. So what, what does that all mean? So in the last four years, basically, while the male audience is still much larger than the female audience, it's about one third to two thirds, the female audience was maintained better over those four years than the male audience was, with the exception of last year, 2018. That is the year that Ronda Rousey joined WWE. In that year, last year, 2018, female audience 18 to 49 declined 12%, while male audience 18 to 49 only declined 1%. Female audience 12 to 34 declined 13%. Male audience 12 to 34 declined slightly less, 11%. So I don't know. That, that's Those are facts. That's a, a metric, a data point. The increases in the female audience in 2015, 16, 17, uh, that does coincide with Total Divas still being a show that exists, although its viewership has declined uh, from season to season. Whether or not it's a cause or a factor in, in the increase in female viewership, uh, Charlotte, Sasha Banks, Becky Lynch debuted on Raw on July 13th, 2015. Maybe that's a factor. But it doesn't look from this data that Ronda Rousey brought with her a big female audience to start watching Raw. Uh, And in the Google web search data that I've seen, you can compare her to other top female stars like Charlotte, uh, Alexa Bliss, Nikki Bella, Sasha Banks, Becky Lynch. Uh, The searches for Rousey are higher than for the others on average. Uh, I think it's interesting, though, to look back at a Google web search activity for Rousey around the time of UFC fights, which comparatively is enormous. The peak volume for Rousey for searches around the time of UFC fights is 10 times bigger or more uh, than for her highest peak since the time that she's been with WWE, that is the time that she debuted at Royal Rumble in 2018. So what that suggests to me is that she's a way bigger UFC star than she is a WWE star. And does that have anything to do with her losses in UFC at the end to uh, Holly Holm and Amanda Nunez? Was Jonathan Coachman right when he tweeted, I think it's after the loss to Nunez, the second loss, that Rousey's value to WWE now, because she lost twice, is way lower. Or is it just that is a work, is a very different thing? Uh, honestly, I would go so far as to say, uh, whether you prefer pro wrestling or MMA or not, the UFC certainly has its problems, but I think it's a pretty well-delivered product. I think WWE is often a poorly delivered product, and I think all of that is a factor, too.
0: I would have loved to pack this building as the destroyer. I'd just go in there and yell. I say, the intelligent, sensational destroyer is here. And who out there wants to beat me?
1: Boo! <laughs> Dick Byer was 88 years
2: old in Lackawanna. Kelly Dudzik, Channel Two News.
1: I just want to include that Dick the Destroyer Buyer passed away on March 7th. Uh, one of the biggest wrestling stars. Uh, originally from Buffalo, so he lived in Akron here. The, uh, the local news actually came to our, our wrestling gym, Grapples Anonymous, and got some comments uh, on that. So that was a clip from that newscast uh, from Channel 2 here in Buffalo. The One other WrestleNomics topic we'll get to here is WWE ownership. So every March, WWE puts out its proxy statement, which is an SEC filing that every publicly traded company, I believe, puts out, and WWE puts it out every year where they reveal corporate salaries for the major executives. We know that compensation for Vince McMahon was about $5.6 million. Co-presidents George Berrios and Michelle Wilson each got about $9.1 million. Paul Levesque got about $5 million. That includes his wrestling pay. His wrestling pay was around $3 million. That's up from $1.5 million the prior year. The Saudi money must have been good. And executive producer, Kevin Dunn, $5.9 $5.9 million. And I always want to point out that Vince McMahon's compensation does not include about $15 million that he gets from dividends. Of course, WWE pays out a dividend for each share that you own of 12 cents. Vince owns about 32 million shares. Now, there's a quarterly dividend. That means he's getting about $15 million in dividends each year, in addition to his salary in 2018 of over $5.5 million dollars also published here because of their family members uh Stephanie McMahon the chief brand officer got 2.81 million dollars for her corporate salary that includes her pay as a performer and Shane McMahon who holds no corporate role he's only a performer uh got paid just short of a million dollars about 955,000 for uh, whatever he did for WWE in 2018 and how is uh pay for the top corporate executives determined you ask well, the Board of Directors has laid out a plan. There's three major objectives that are supposed to determine just how big the bonuses are for Barrios, Wilson, Dunn, Levesque, Vince McMahon. The three major objectives are optimized domestic media distribution that accounts for 70%. And I guess that would be related to the big TV rights contracts that they, uh, they got in 2018 with Fox and NBC Universal. 20% goes to the next iteration of the WWE Network. That's the premium tier that's probably coming up. And only 10% goes to brand strength, which is described as certain key television ratings, social media metrics, and brand scores. So kind of related to the subject of W popularity that we just talked about, and this interesting uh, counterintuitive situation that WWE finds itself in where TV rights fees are far more important than key metrics like TV ratings. And who knows, maybe that includes attendance and merchandise sales as well. Also disclosed in the proxy statement is just who owns how much of WE shares. Vince McMahon still stands as the largest shareholder, of course. He owns 41% of the stock. Stephanie McMahon owns 2.5% of the stock. Linda McMahon, who has no corporate role in WB, but is the small business administrator for the White House. She owns 0.7% of the stock. And then all others combined own the rest of the 56%. And who are these others? Everyone always wants to know when this information comes out every year. Who are the others? Well, the others are mostly just big financial firms, uh, financial firms that probably nobody's heard of, like BlackRock Inc., the Vanguard Group, Linsdale, Train Limited. The, these companies own 6 or 7% of the stock, and other firms own smaller pieces. Uh, George Berrios, Michelle Wilson, and yes, Triple H. Uh, they, they all own shares, but it's a very, very small percentage of the stock, less than 1%. So no, Stephanie and, and Paul will, will not be leading a hostile takeover anytime soon. Uh, and In fact, you'll, you'll notice uh, that I just mentioned Vince McMahon owns a minority of the overall stock. He only owns 42% of the entire stock. But because Vince McMahon owns special family shares that are called B-class shares, uh, his stock is worth 10% when it comes to voting rights. So even though he's only got 41% of the shares, he's got 82% of the voting power because each one of his shares is worth 10 times the value. And then this is true for Stephanie and for Linda as well. But so Stephanie's voting power only comes out to about 5% of the overall voting power. Uh, Linda has about one and a half percent of the voting power. So again, 82% of the voting power still in Vince McMahon's control. And uh, Darren Rovell pointed out that uh, all of Vince McMahon's shares, the market value uh, when he tweeted it on March 6th, it was $2.6 billion. And now the W stock has uh, gone up to, it's what, at, I think $92, just over $92 a share. Now the market value of the shares at this moment as of market close on Friday, the uh, value of Vince McMahon's shares are $2.9 billion, almost $3 billion. So, So Vince is very much still a billionaire just based on the worth of his shares alone. So I think that's all I have for today. Maybe I'll do this uh, every once in a while. I don't know. You can give me feedback uh, on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. You can email me at uh, WrestleNomics at gmail.com. Uh, I thank you all for listening. I, I want to thank uh, Sean Ross Sapp and Flightful.com for publishing my work and getting it out there. Uh, Voices of Wrestling, always a supporter of WrestleNomics and of, uh, of Mookie and I over the years. We appreciate being a part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. And I'll add here that uh, as we continue to study WrestleNomics and as I continue to write articles about the wrestling industry and to record this podcast, I think it's important to reflect on why I do this and that I study the business side of wrestling not because I think business and money are like the ultimate good that is the most important thing in wrestling but I think I study it because wrestling like just any other industry or business, the economics are what motivate the business more than anything else, and wrestling over all these years has become a big thing in my life. I've become a wrestler, a wrestling trainer, a wrestling writer, so I kind of look at it as the piece of the world that I have the most ability to affect. So if we're going to understand the wrestling world, and if we're going to understand how to make wrestling better, I think we need to understand the thing that motivates it most, and that's the economic side of it pro wrestling so i think studying the wrestling side of business is really important but it is not the ultimate objective i think the ultimate goal is to make sure that pro wrestling can be a thing that tells good stories and reveals important truths and can be a nice recreation for people at least and can be an important catharsis at most and i think we have a responsibility too to make sure that we don't use it to reinforce bad things like hate and selfish fear. So like in a time where the Wrestling Observer Awards come out and you think about who's the MVP, who's the who's the one who's the best at in-ring performances and, and a combination of that, and who's the best at also being a money draw, I think it's worth giving credit to to somebody like Mustafa Ali who's, who's done something out of the norm in pro wrestling and is doing something to break stereotypes as well as being a really good wrestler in the ring. So I'll leave you all with a clip from Splinter News about Mustafa Ali. Talk to you later.
2: When I was growing up, I loved wrestling. I loved everything about it. One character that reached out through the screen and spoke to me was Bret the Hitman Hart. He was that classic good guy, and despite his foes using underhanded tactics, he never compromised who he was. I was born in Chicago with two older brothers. I would make these makeshift wrestling costumes and we'd pretend we are at WrestleMania. But when I tuned in, Anyone of Middle Eastern heritage was always portrayed as the bad guy, the evil form, the terrorist. And I knew I didn't want to do that. The initial stages of my career, I was actually hiding behind a mask to hide who I was. But I was getting frustrated. I wasn't getting better bookings. I wasn't competing at bigger events. Several of my friends in the industry kept saying, like, you know, now is the time. You should try out doing an evil character. And so was born Prince Mustafa Ali. Prince Mustafa Ali! You just add the whole head garb thing, yelling in a foreign language. My, my bookings went up. I was getting flown all over the U.S. to compete, but something inside of me is always an uneasy feeling. I remember seeing a young boy, maybe six, seven years old. And as I approached the garbage, he jumped out of his chair and he put his hands up. And I remember looking into this kid's eyes and I remember seeing hate. And right then and there it hit me. I was like, did I just teach this kid to hate people that look like me? And from that point forward, I created a new character. Mustafa Ali. Mustafa Ali. Mustafa Ali! is who I wanted to see when I was growing up. I'm not wearing anything on my head. I'm not saying anything in Arabic. I'm just going to come out as Mustafa Ali. Like a lot of promoters were not happy with the new direction. It took me almost a year really working hard for my actual in-ring performance, night in and night out. I have to prove myself all over again. I remember performing in Paris, and I never heard that many boos from me in my life. And then I performed. Despite losing the match, they still chanted my name. And I remember just taking a moment to realize, like, this is what you're doing. You're changing people's minds. That's what the character is all about, being the light in the dark. Mustafa! I turned this public opinion about me all the way around. I became like one of the top good guys in the industry. Mustafa Ali is headed to WrestleMania. I got to compete at WrestleMania 34. For 20 minutes, the entire world, millions of people were watching me. It's the dream come true. Oh, no. John Cena standing up. I represent the kids that sit in the third row that look like me, and they got a funny name like mine, and they get to go, hey, Mustafa Ali, he wrestles for WWE. There are no limitations. There are no barriers. Nothing can stop you, and nothing can define you but you.
0: Here is your winner, you stop!